Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Aptalis Pharma, Inc., Gilead Sciences, Inc., and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Today's program is a companion piece to our E-Cystic Fibrosis Review newsletter issue, What Does CFTR Tell Us About Lung Disease? Our guest today is that issue's author, Dr. Patrick Sosny from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This activity has been developed for pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies and expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org, and click on the Volume 4, Issue 12 podcast link. Learning objectives for this program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to recognize that Ivacaftor is a new therapy for CF patients, specifically with the G551D mutation that corrects the CFTR protein and results in improved lung function, describe what's known about how CFTR genotype influences lung function, and describe the use of CFTR genotype to facilitate making diagnoses of cystic fibrosis, predicting prognoses, and selecting therapies. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the line, we have with us Dr. Patrick Sosny, Assistant Professor of Medicine of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the McCusick-Nathans Institute for Genetic Medicine and the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Center at the Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Sosny has indicated that he does not have any relevant financial interests or relationships with any commercial entities, and has also indicated that his discussion today will not refer to the unlabeled or unapproved uses of drugs or products. Dr. Sosny, thank you for joining us today for this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thanks, Bob. I'm happy to be here, and hopefully this is an informative session for our listeners. Our topic is, what does CFTR tell us about lung disease? In last month's newsletter issue, you reviewed the relevant literature describing how advances in understanding the CFTR gene have been related to improvement in lung function. What I'd like to do today is discuss how some of that new information can be translated into clinical practice. Uh, so if you would, please, doctor. Start us out with a patient description. So our first patient is a 13-year-old girl, and she's diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, but she has an unknown genotype. Uh, She may have never been genotyped or it might not be available. Her and her family heard some good news about new CF drugs, and they were curious to see if she might be a candidate for these new drugs. She's got reasonably good lung function with an FEV1 that's 90% predicted, although she's had a couple of severe pulmonary exacerbations, including one last winter that actually required for her to be in the hospital getting IV antibiotics. Now, this patient, you don't have the genotype. Her lung function generally isn't too bad, but she's had some severe exacerbations. Would you consider her a candidate for Ivacaftor? Uh, and my question here goes to what information should the clinician get before making that decision? Well, Bob, she might be a candidate for the drug, but she really needs to undergo genetic testing so we know for sure. Genetic testing is available commercially, both through academic labs as well as for-profit labs, and the type of genetic testing done could very easily tell if she carries at least one of the G551D mutation that Ivacaftor has been shown to be effective against. So if she was recently diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, it might be that she had CF genetic testing, but that CF genetic testing did not pick up the mutation G551D. 
So if she was tested recently, it's unlikely that she's got that mutation. But if she's never been genotyped or if she were genotyped quite some time ago, it's possible that she wasn't tested for G551D. Given that she's 13 years old, the chances are probably that she's been genotyped at some point, but those records should try to be obtained. If she hasn't been genotyped, there are services both in the United States and in Europe that would cover the cost of genotyping. So through the U.S. Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, the cost of genotyping can be covered so the patients don't have to pay the out-of-pocket cost for that. So let's take the next step. She's genotyped and the genotype comes back. She has one copy of G551D. Well, she'll actually be a great candidate for the drug. Now, it's a very expensive drug, so we'll need to work with insurance or work with your CF clinic to try to pay for it. The drug company actually has programs for patients that have high out-of-pocket costs because of their insurance or because they're not insurance. So work with your CF center, work with your social worker to try to get it. But she carries the mutation, so she would be a candidate for the drug. Now, once she starts on the drug, she might feel better, but it's possible that she might begin to feel a little bit worse. Some of the patients that took the drug in the Ramsey trial that was mentioned in the newsletter experienced some cough, some runny nose, even some shortness of breath. These are all symptoms that are typical with cystic fibrosis, but sometimes the patients that were taking the drug experience those symptoms as well. We really don't know if the drug is going to be successful right away. There are some patients that feel that they get better as soon as they're taking it. But for the most part, patients notice the effect of drug over time. And at this time, we really have to recommend that she still do all of her other medications, her airway clearance, inhaled antibiotics, any other medications to help maintain her cystic fibrosis like pancreatic enzymes. Now, she's a pediatric patient, so she's more like the second paper that was presented in the newsletter, not the Ramsey paper, but the other one that was mentioned that was done in pediatrics. The results are similar, though, and both encouraging, and both pediatric patients and adult patients should have a good response to the drug. A different scenario. She's genotyped, but her genotype does not contain a G551D. So at this time, she's not eligible for any FDA-approved drugs. And we really even don't know if the drug would help. This is a situation where I would strongly encourage the patient and her family to really talk to her CF provider about potentially enrolling in a research study because other genotypes and other therapies are being investigated. But there's nothing that's available through the FDA at this point. Now, something you said, that once she starts on Ivacaftor, she might feel a little bit worse. Cough, runny nose, maybe some shortness of breath. What are the specific side effects of this agent that clinicians need to be aware of? Well, this is a new drug, so we really don't have a good idea of what the long-term side effects are going to be. She'll need to have some maintenance labs, particularly some maintenance blood tests that will check her liver function. There was some evidence in the pre-approval clinical trials that there might be a slight increase in liver function tests. Now, encouragingly, after the drug has been approved, we haven't seen much elevation in the liver function tests, and it appears that those were just an enamel. She also is going to need to have her sweat chloride concentration checked again and potentially nasal potential difference done. This would be a sign that the drug is working. The side effects that we're seeing with the drug are pretty common side effects that we see with all drugs, including rash, abdominal pain, nausea, diarrhea. And the encouraging thing is that all of these side effects occur just as common in patients taking placebo as they did as taking the drug. So it's a good evidence that the drug is likely safe. Although, once again, reemphasizing the point, because it's a new drug, we just don't know. So the patient needs to be monitored, of course. Uh, summarize this patient for us, if you would, please. What are the key things the CF clinician needs to know? So in this patient, where we don't know the genotype, really the first step is to find out what CFTR mutations 
that she carries. If she carries at least one copy of the G551D mutation, then she's eligible for a new FDA and European Union-approved therapy of Ivacaftor. This Ivacaftor drug works to repair the basic defect of the mutated CFTR. This is a new drug, so we don't really know the side effects of it, but encouragingly, in clinical trials and after the drug has been approved, all the side effects seem pretty mild. But of course, you should keep up communication with her doctor that's prescribed. Thank you for that patient and that discussion, Dr. Zosny. Let me ask you to bring us another patient now, if you would, please. So our second patient is a six-week-old, and they were diagnosed by newborn screen. Genotype is done as part of the newborn screen, and it comes back with one copy of a mutation called R117H and one copy of a mutation that you might not have heard of at all. For the purpose of the discussion, we're going to use the mutation E56K. If you hadn't heard of that mutation, you're not uncommon because it's a pretty rare mutation. Now, this is a baby that was picked up through newborn screening, but other than that positive newborn screen, she's totally asymptomatic, has not yet had a sweat test. In your newsletter issue, you reviewed papers on classifying CFTR disorders. Uh, let me ask you to apply that information here. How would you diagnose this baby? Does she have cystic fibrosis, or, or is it CF metabolic syndrome, or CFTR-related disease, or, or even does she have no disease at all? Uh, talk to us about the diagnostic process. Well, the diagnostic process for cystic fibrosis really remains a clinical diagnosis. So nothing that comes back on the genotyping test should make you say this patient has cystic fibrosis or doesn't have cystic fibrosis if the clinical symptoms are pointing you one way or the other. Now, I'm a geneticist, but I'm also a clinician. And if I see a patient in clinic that has clinical symptoms of cystic fibrosis, I treat them like they have cystic fibrosis, regardless of what the genotype report comes out as. In the absence of two known CF-causing mutations, we need some other piece of evidence to say that the CFTR protein is not working. And usually what we'll do is to do a sweat test, and that would show that the CFTR protein is not working. Or we might do a test called a nasal potential difference, another slightly more invasive test that would tell us that the CFTR protein is not working. There's actually a rectal biopsy that can be done experimentally, although it's not commonly done in clinical practice. So this baby would likely fit the diagnosis of what we call CF metabolic syndrome. And there's a possibility that they would be diagnosed with cystic fibrosis later in life. That diagnosis of CF metabolic syndrome was described in the Borowitz article referred to in the newsletter. That CF metabolic syndrome is really just a parking lot. It's for patients that have a positive newborn screen with some CFTR mutations, but not the kind of CFTR mutations that we really know, oh, this is like Delta F508 or F508-DEL or G551-D, where we know that they definitely cause cystic fibrosis. Now, you described the genotyping of this baby's mutations as R117H and E56K. Now, you're probably right in saying that E56K isn't too well known by the non-geneticists in our audience. So where should a clinician go to get information about E56K or, or another mutation that they might not know about? Well, like most things these days, Bob, the first place to go is to the internet. And, you know, oftentimes people will just Google a mutation and they might find some information about it. But anytime you Google anything, you get sort of the good with the bad and everything comes back. So here's a couple of websites that might be particularly helpful and are particularly well validated. The CFTR2 website, and this is a website that's put together at Johns Hopkins by myself and some colleagues, as well as an international team, is really designed for clinicians to tell exactly this. 
if they get a mutation back on a patient on a newborn screen or an adult with a difficult diagnosis, this is a resource to try to tell if this is a mutation that causes CF, doesn't cause CF, or one of those gray area mutations that sometimes causes CF but sometimes doesn't. The historical reference that's still in use today is the CF mutation database, and that's run out of the University of Toronto and Sick Kids Hospital. And this was started actually before even the internet. This was started as a newsletter that went out periodically, and it was a sort of a card catalog of all the different CF mutations. That website is still in use, but that describes all the mutations in the CFTR gene, not just the mutations that we know cause cystic fibrosis. CFTR2 is specific to the mutations that cause cystic fibrosis. The CF mutation database and CFTR2 are linked, so if you find a mutation in one, you can go back and forth in the other. Now, other resources that might be useful, obviously, if you did a PubMed search and found a publication with patients that had that mutation, that might give you a clue of how severe that mutation is. There's another database that's run through the National Institute of Health and the NCBI. It's called OMIM, or the Online Mendelian Inheritance in Man, and that has all different diseases, not just cystic fibrosis, but it does have a catalog of some of the mutations in CFTR, the gene that's mutated in CF, that can cause disease. A couple of the other resources that also are for all genetic disorders, not just cystic fibrosis, include dbSNP, which is a catalog of all the different variants in our genetic code. So it's obviously much more suited to a scientist than a clinician. There's a database called ClinVar that's also run through the NCBI that is beginning to catalog mutations. That's the U.S. equivalent. The European equivalent is the LOVD, or the Leiden Online Database of Variants. Another type of database that has all different diseases but might have the CF mutation that you're looking for. A good clue, if you can't find anything, is to look at the genetic testing lab report. And many of the commercial labs and many of the academic labs will actually put what's known about a mutation on the report, including links to papers or links to CFTR2. And if you looked in CFTR2, you might see that E56K actually is a CF-causing mutation, but it's associated with some milder phenotypes when it's been reported in patients. I want to let our listeners know that links to all these websites can be found in the transcript version of this podcast. Now, Dr. Sosny, this patient's other mutation, the R117H, that one's pretty well known. But tell us about the significance of R117H. R117H gives patients and gives clinicians a lot of headaches because it's a difficult-to-understand mutation. Science has worked out some of how this mutation works, but really it's very hard to predict. R117H is an example of a missense mutation. Sometimes it can cause CF. Other times it can cause no problems at all where the patient doesn't have any symptoms whatsoever, can live a totally normal life. And what seems to predict whether or not R117H is going to cause cystic fibrosis or not cause cystic fibrosis is a genetic change that's close in the gene called the poly-T tract. This is within the intron of the gene or part of the gene that doesn't code for the protein but can tell the machinery of the cell how much protein to make. When genetic testing labs see R117H, they do a test of that poly-T tract. It's called a reflex testing. You shouldn't have to order it separately. Automatically, when they see R117H, they should do this. And on that chromosome, on that CFTR gene, where the R117H is, you're looking for the 5T, a string of five thymidine residues. That five thymidine residues is the type of sort of the flavor of R117H 
that's most likely to be associated with CF. If they see R117H and 7T, sometimes it causes CF, but more often than not, it's asymptomatic. And if they see R117H with 9T, it's always asymptomatic. This is difficult to tell whether your 5T or 7T or 9T is with the R117H or not. And in some cases, the parents have to be tested to see which poly-T track is passed along with the R117H mutation. Well, thank you for that explanation. Let's go back now to the six-week-old baby you originally described. What's the expected prognosis, and what would that prediction be based on? Well, even with a genetic disease that's got a clear Mendelian cause, there's really a wide range of possibilities. This was talked about in the introduction to the e-newsletter, where we talked about even with patients with Delta F508, you know, there's a wide range of lung function. So when I'm talking to patients, you know, I'll, I'll say, we really don't know what to expect. There are people that have very, very severe disease, and there are people that have mild disease. So as much as we can do to try to encourage good follow-up, good adherence to medication, good communication with the CF team to try to maximize our chance of those good outcomes. So let's take this patient in particular. They've got R117H, and let's assume that they've got the 5T. It's a mutation that causes cystic fibrosis, but typically it's a milder mutation that is associated with pancreatic-sufficient cystic fibrosis. So this is the kind of patient that wouldn't need to take pancreatic replacement enzymes, at least during childhood. Lung function is very, very difficult to predict. So it's very hard to say whether this patient's going to have mild or severe lung disease. I'd use this as a teaching point to try to encourage we need to do as best we can with following through with therapies, and treating infections, and maintaining good nutrition, all the things that we know that are associated with good lung function. So this is a patient with E56K that we talked about is probably a milder mutation and R117H5T, which is also a milder mutation. Now, this is a patient that may have cystic fibrosis. They've got two mutations that can cause cystic fibrosis, but in this case where we've got two mild mutations together, this person might not develop the symptoms of cystic fibrosis till they're later in life, and they might develop just a single organ that's a problem. So they could have just a little bit of lung problems like bronchiectasis. They could have pancreas problems like pancreatitis, or if this were a male, the only way you might know that this person isn't healthy is if they have infertility due to obstructive azospermia, or sometimes called CBAVD, congenital bilateral absence of the vas deferens. What about testing? What tests would be useful in this situation? Well, in this case, I think the clinical tests have to take priority, and using your clinical intuition is the most important thing about how to treat this baby. Some of the diagnostic tests that might be useful would be a sweat chloride test that can be done at a CF center. In general, just a good history and physical. And I think in particular, attention to how the patient's doing on the growth curve. A lot of times if the patient's having problems, some of the first things you'll notice will be that they're not growing, their weight isn't gaining, they're not growing in inches as much. PFTs are really tough to interpret in infants. They can be done, but it's hard to really know whether any problems seen are a problem with the test or actually a problem due to the lung. And I think the most important thing is really to establish a good line of communication and make sure the family knows that these are issues that you want to hear about, particularly lung problems or problems with growth, and ensure that the baby's got good follow-up. There's some research tests that sometimes we do. I mentioned the rectal biopsy before or the nasal potential difference, but it's less likely that these would be done. And I think time is a more important teacher of what this patient's going to do than any particular diagnostic test. Now, thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Patrick Sosny from the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Center in just a moment. 
Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of eCystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews the current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a thousand of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Patrick Sosny from the McCusick Nathans Institute for Genetic Medicine and the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Center. And our topic is what does CFTR tell us about lung disease? We've been discussing how some of the new information Dr. Sosny reviewed in his newsletter issue can be translated into clinical practice. Uh, so, so to continue, doctor, let me ask you to present us with another patient now, if you would, please. So for our next patient, we're going to leave the pediatric clinics and go to the adult clinic, which is really my more area of expertise, so I'm going to be much more comfortable. We've got a 57-year-old gentleman, and he's referred to you for evaluation of bronchiectasis, dilation of the airways. He describes a history of frequent bouts of bronchitis. Usually, he goes on antibiotics for these, and at times, he's put on corticosteroids as well. He has a sputum culture done, and it's growing pseudomonas, one of the typical organisms that we see with cystic fibrosis, but we also see with bronchiectasis in general. He has a CFTR genotype sent, and we see that he's got one copy of F508-DEL and another copy of a novel mutation, G178E. And you look on some of those online resources that we talked about and can't find anything about G178E. All right. 57 years old, frequent bronchitis, and you've been asked to evaluate for bronchiectasis. Let's start there with the diagnosis. Does this patient have cystic fibrosis? Well, cystic fibrosis is a clinical diagnosis. So just because he's got two genetic variants doesn't mean definitively that he's got cystic fibrosis. G178E is an example of what I'd call an uncharacterized variant. We don't know if that's just a DNA change that doesn't have an effect on the CFTR protein or if it's a DNA change that is deleterious or harmful to the protein and could lead to cystic fibrosis. In this case, other diagnostic tests would be useful, particularly a sweat chloride. In what scenarios would he not have cystic fibrosis? Well, the first situation, which is kind of a tricky one, is we don't know if these two mutations 
are on the same chromosome or on different chromosomes. The term geneticists will use is when two mutations are on the same chromosome or in the same gene, they're referred to as being in cis. If the two mutations are on opposite chromosomes, they would be in trans. For this patient to have cystic fibrosis, that G178 mutation would have to be on a different chromosome than his F508 DEL or Delta F508. The G178 mutation is a mutation that we haven't studied, so we don't know if it's neutral and doesn't harm the protein or if it's deleterious and interrupts protein function so that it doesn't work well. If the case that G178E is a neutral variant, sometimes these are referred to as polymorphisms, although that term isn't really correct, he could be an example of a carrier. Now, for the most part, we think of CF carriers as being asymptomatic. But in very rare cases, sometimes carrier develops some of the symptoms of cystic fibrosis. The big question about whether we call him CF or not, because he's got at least some symptoms, the bronchiectasis and the pseudomonas that would go with cystic fibrosis, we would want to look at the other organs that would be affected in cystic fibrosis. We'd want to do a detailed history and maybe even some diagnostic tests to look at his pancreas. We'd want to make sure to ask him whether he's had any history of pancreatitis. We'd want to do a sweat test to see if there's evidence of CFTR dysfunction in his sweat gland. We'd want to look to see if he's had any infertility, any problems with infertility in his life. Sinus symptoms might be another thing that might suggest that he's got CFTR dysfunction in more than one organ system. Let me ask you to approach the diagnosis from the opposite perspective. What would make you clearly diagnose this patient as having cystic fibrosis? Bob, I would say that this person has a clear diagnosis of cystic fibrosis if he's got an abnormal sweat test or an abnormal nasal potential difference. Those are tests that directly measure CFTR function that would tell us that CFTR is not working and definitively that his bronchitis, his bronchiectasis, his pseudomonas infection in his lung is due to CFTR dysfunction. We could also, if these tests aren't necessarily diagnostic, We also might suggest that he's got cystic fibrosis if he has other organ system manifestations. So, for example, if you are able to elicit a history that he's got infertility because of obstructive azospermia or CBAVD, or he's got a history of pancreatitis, or perhaps he's got a history of nasal polyps or extensive sinus disease. So, either those two things. Number one, we've got direct evidence of CFTR dysfunction with an abnormal sweat test or an abnormal nasal potential difference. Or number two, He's got another organ system that's disrupted in a typical pattern that we'd see in cystic fibrosis. Let's assume that this patient shows you the direct evidence, or as you just said, involvement of another organ, and so you diagnose him as having cystic fibrosis. From the clinician's perspective in the clinic, how does that diagnosis affect his management? This is a pretty challenging question, and you could argue it either as yes, it makes a difference, or no, it doesn't make a difference. Now, it's a little bit easier in older adults. It's a little bit easier for me taking care of adult patients where we have this uncertain diagnostic situation. For the purpose of this patient, we're really not going to do too much different whether or not we diagnose him with cystic fibrosis. We would treat him with antibiotics. We would use airway clearance measurements like perhaps an acapella valve or at least meeting with a physical therapist or a respiratory therapist to talk about good airway hygiene and good airway clearance maneuvers. In general, it's often, and especially in the United States, making a diagnosis of cystic fibrosis is beneficial because it gets you into the multidisciplinary CF care teams. 
Now, I've always said we take better care of our CF patients than a lot of other clinics do. And I think one of the reasons are is we've got committed doctors, nurses, but also committed dietitians, committed physical therapists, committed social workers. And they're all know the disease, cystic fibrosis well, and they're all used to working with patients with problems such as this. Where it's particularly important to know whether or not he's got a diagnosis of cystic fibrosis is really to his family that also might carry some of the mutations. And this is a situation where I would encourage his family members to be offered genetic counseling. If he, for example, has uh, children that are thinking about having their own kids, or even if he's got nieces or nephews that may carry the same CFTR mutations that we found. The important consideration here, and really the elephant in the room of all this, is what is it going to do with regards to health insurance? Now, obviously, in the United States, we're undergoing a lot of changes in health insurance with the Affordable Care Act coming online, but the CF diagnosis would make it much more difficult for either him or his employer to purchase health insurance. So that's certainly something that has to be considered before you label him with cystic fibrosis as a diagnosis. But in general, he'd probably get better care in a CF center regardless of whether or not he's got the diagnosis. And the treatment you'd use wouldn't necessarily be that much different whether or not we call him CF or we call him a CF-like disease, bronchiectasis and pseudomonas. A brief summation, doctor. Your thoughts on diagnosing this patient? This patient is a challenging patient that can be difficult either way. I think the diagnosis of cystic fibrosis is clear if you've got an abnormal sweat test or an abnormal nasal potential difference. If you don't have those tests or if those tests don't show a clear CF diagnosis, it becomes much tougher. This is an example of a patient that you might consider having a CFTR-related disorder, an example of a disease that's described by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and other large group of doctors that take care of CF patients as being the gray area between full-blown CF, and healthy adults. Uh, Thank you for today's cases and today's discussion, Dr. Sosny. Let me ask you to make some predictions for us now, if you would, about the future of cystic fibrosis genetics and mutation-specific therapies. So we're at a really, really exciting time in cystic fibrosis. And Ivacaftor, we hope, is the tip of the iceberg for mutation-specific therapies. This is an example of a patient based on the particular mutations that they have are going to get drugs specifically targeted to that type of mutation or that group of mutation, or in some cases, maybe even that single mutation that are going to be effective and repair the defect of that mutated CFTR protein. This is good because it really allows us a way of thinking about personalized medicine in a very, very discrete example. This is, I think, the best example of personalized or individual medicine. One of the things that we're learning is the correlation between the genotype, the mutation someone has, and their phenotype. And this is a challenging task to correlate what their genes are and their phenotype, which is how they're going to do clinically. The McCohen article in the newsletter discussed some of the challenges with that. There are several new therapies that are under investigation, specifically some therapies for mutations that cause premature termination, class 1 mutations, and other therapies that are specifically for the F508-DEL mutation. All of those therapies are under experimental trials. I'd encourage you to contact your CF center about potentially enrolling in those trials if you're interested. But the hope is that those trials are going to be available for patients in the near future.
Finally, I want to reinforce the point I made, really, that CF is going to remain a clinical diagnosis even in the future, even as we've got these databases and even as we have this sort of enhanced understanding of genotype and phenotype relationships. The clinician is still very, very important because looking at a patient and seeing how they're doing is going to tell you a lot more than necessarily the genetic testing report. Thank you for sharing those thoughts, doctor. To wrap things up, let's review the key points of today's podcast in light of our learning objectives. Uh, So to begin, recognizing that Ivacaftor is a new therapy for CF patients who specifically have the G551D mutation. So remember what we talked about in case one, that Ivacaftor is a therapy specifically for patients that have at least one copy of the G551D mutation. Patients with cystic fibrosis that have at least one copy of G551D. As the Ramsey article pointed out, discussed in the newsletter, it's been associated with improvements in pulmonary function, less CF exacerbations, improvement in weight, improvement in sweat chloride, improvement in the respiratory questionnaire score that really talked about how the patients are doing from day to day. Encouragingly also, the side effects of this medication seem to be similar to placebo, but it's a new drug. So of course, we'll need to watch it going forward as patients are on it for longer periods of time. And our second objective, how CFTR genotype influences lung function. Bob, we didn't specifically talk about this in the cases, but one of the reasons we didn't talk about it is it's very, very difficult to predict. So for example, that child in case two that had a positive newborn screen, it's very difficult to predict what their lung function is going to be. There's a wide range of possibilities. And their CFTR genotype doesn't necessarily tell us exactly what their lung function is going to be in five years, 10 years, 50 years. Now, the other side of that is the patient we described in case three. He had evidence of lung disease, but we didn't know if his lung disease was due to CFTR dysfunction or just due to bad luck and chance and maybe something in his environment that caused his bronchiectasis and exposed him to pseudomonas. So CFTR genotype is tremendously important, but it really can't be used to predict what our lung function is going to be. Uh, And finally... Using CFTR genotype to help diagnose cystic fibrosis, predict prognosis, and select therapies. After I told you in the last objective how CFTR genotype is not that useful to predict what someone's lung function is going to be, CFTR genotype is still useful and is going to become more useful the more we know about this disease. Specifically, we can use CFTR genotype to help us make a diagnosis of CF. If someone's got two known bona fide CF causing mutations, that should instruct the clinician to look hard that that patient likely has the other clinical symptoms that would go along with cystic fibrosis. The other way that genotype is useful is it allows us to make some generalized prediction about the prognosis of a patient. We're not going to be able to say exactly what the lung function is going to be, but we have a good idea whether or not the patient is going to be pancreatic insufficient and what to expect over the course of the lifetime of someone that has severe mutations versus milder mutations that are often associated with pancreatic sufficient disease. And really, our hopeful future is that CFTR genotype is going to allow us to choose therapies. That's the future is here now for Ivacaftor, and hopefully the future is coming soon for patients with F508-DEL and other mutations. Dr. Patrick Sosny from the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Center, thank you for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Bob, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. I know this genetic stuff is tough, and I do it every day, so I can certainly relate with the average CF clinician that doesn't have much exposure to this. But hopefully this podcast 
and the newsletter have been a little bit of a help to try to instruct the clinician on how genetics are going to be used in the future of cystic fibrosis. This podcast is presented in conjunction with eCystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CME and CME-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. Eastistic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Aptalis Pharma, Inc., Gilead Sciences, Inc., and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyrighted with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.